Nelson, I'm one of the pastors here. It's uh, good to be with you. Whether you are joining by a live stream or here in person, this cozy little crew, uh, or listening to the podcast after the fact, it is a, a privilege to have your attention for this teaching moment, so thank you. Before I continue, I, some of you might be wondering what this strange, circular, colorful image is up on the screen, and that, friends, will be revealed in due course. Uh, we are in the season of Epiphany, after all, which means Revelation. So you'll be glad to know it is connected to the title of the series. There's method here. Uh, but for more than that, you're just going to have to wait a little bit longer. Um, I've been thinking a lot about time recently. And in particular, how when we go through something significant, whether it's the pandemic itself, it's the death of a loved one, the loss of a relationship, gaining new friends and connections, starting a new job, whether it involves deep sadness and grief, or it takes us to the heights of joy or something in between, these things fundamentally alter our relationship with time. What we thought was important maybe isn't so critical anymore. And what is primary seems to grab our attention in new ways. In my recent conversations, uh, maybe you've had some like this, the phrase often comes up, what even is time? Um, it's, usually, it's usually said rhetorically, just like that, and it's responded with laughter. No expectation of any kind of answer. It might even be offensive if someone tried to answer it. I we might just shrug a little or go, right? Uh, and the conversation just moves on. But that doesn't change the fact that it's a really good question. What is time? On this week's episode of the On Being podcast, host Krista Tippett decided to ask it of her guest in a decidedly non-rhetorical way. What is time, she asked. Oliver Berkman, who is a British journalist and the author of the recent book, 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals. He responded by saying that time is often imagined as a kind of resource container into which we cram all of our tasks and desires and resolutions and do lists and hopes. It's an approach to time that imagines control. It's built on the assumption that it's time that's awkward and unmanageable, not us. Rather than time as a resource container, Berkman suggests seeing time as a portal, a portal into the human condition our desires, our resistances, our relationship to pain, constraint, disappointment, and pleasure. And because time does indeed reveal who we are in these ways, it's no surprise that distraction is so appealing. Berkman writes, I think that the closer technology brings us to the cusp of feeling like we are the gods of our time, the more incredibly offensive it seems to be reminded of all the ways in which we still aren't. Isn't that good? Remember that scene in Gulliver's Travels? Did you read that in school? Um, where the Lilliputians think that because Gulliver keeps checking his clock, it must be his God. What that story was getting at, what Berkman's hinting at, that story was, was illuminating nearly 300 years ago. This worship of control and hurry and efficiency is just as on point today, if not more. 
Only in my case, the Lilliputians would think my God was my smartphone. Many of us tend to live under this fantasy of getting everything done, which can be a tool for putting off the things that matter most. As a writer, Berkman shares the example of getting up from a writing session and switching into parenting mode and not letting the notion of, oh, I was almost there, interrupt his time with his family. So after years of trying, he says, I'm a bit more at peace with those things because I no longer believe deep down that I'm going to one day get to the point where you've reached the summit and you can just keep walking along the plateau with no effort, but you're gonna reach the top part of life where there are no problems. So where he says, at peace with those things, insert your own list of what hinders or interrupts your precious program of getting everything done. So what might it mean to live well with time? What if the antidote isn't technological? I watched a lot of Marvel over the Christmas break. Um, and <laughs> there are a lot of good stories, it's a lot of good entertainment value, but man, if there's one narrative through line that the Marvel stories tell us, it's that technology will someday save us, that connected with superpower and good-hearted humans, yes. But what if it's not technology? What if it's not an app or a new technique, but a renewed commitment to engage deeply with what really matters? And what might it mean to live well with time as a church? We've been through a lot over the last couple of years. We lost our lead pastor just before the pandemic. We've untethered from relationship with our denomination and we're entering into new partnerships and connections. We're beginning to embark on another engagement process around leadership to try to co-discern as best we can about our pastoral needs for the future. There's much that's uncertain, there's much that's unknown, but here's what we do know. What hasn't changed is we are still an imperfect community centered on Jesus. Here's what we remain convinced of. Here's the narrative we trust and seek to live into, that God became incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ, that he came to earth, lived and taught, forgave and healed. He ate and drank with disreputable people. He continually confounded and frustrated the religious insiders as well as the political movers and shakers, not to mention his disciples, that he was crucified and died and was buried and that he rose again from the dead and ascended to the right hand of God. And in all of this showed us the best possible way to be human. So if living well with time looks like leaning into what matters most, and at the core of what matters most to us is practicing the way of Jesus, living inside that story, how do we do that in our shared life? Well, I'm becoming more and more convinced that one of the best ways to practice the way of Jesus is to practice liturgical time. We'll get into the why and the what of that shortly, but first, some of us might be just wondering, what, what does the word liturgy and liturgical even mean? So the root of liturgical is liturgy. Liturgy is connected to the word worship, and it means essentially the work of the people, the work of the people. 
Let's back up and consider the word worship for a moment and how there are several ways of thinking about worship. I briefly just want to name two. One is found in what is probably a familiar verse to many of us, Romans 12, verse 1, where the author writes, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. So in this context, true and proper worship means everything we do in view of or in response to God's mercy. This is worship as seen through a macro lens. Our entire embodied existence is meant to be a conscious response to the God who is love, who in Christ extended mercy and grace while we were still sinners, the God who loved us first, yeah? So when we use the word liturgy in contrast, we're talking about worship through a micro lens. What we usually mean by liturgy is all we do as a gathered community to worship God in a ritual sense, as we are now on Sunday mornings. Liturgy is the form our worship takes. It's the flow of our gatherings. That's artisan's liturgy. It also refers to specific elements, a really technical term, bits of liturgy. <laughs> so part of our liturgy, or one of the bits of our liturgy is our song worship, which we've already done. So is the collect, which collects words for us to pray and gathers us in so we can pray together. Another is the scripture reading, our table and generosity liturgies, the sermon, the benediction, and so on. We've got quite a bit of liturgy in our gatherings. But in this sense, every church has a liturgy, whether they think of themselves as liturgical or not. So even a wildly charismatic church that would never use a pre-written prayer or a reading has an expected flow or order to things. Maybe you've been to those churches. Usually it's a lot of singing followed by a very long sermon, even more singing, and eventually you go home. Anyone been to those gatherings before? Bless. Bless my charismatic sisters and brothers. All churches have liturgies because humans are liturgical beings. We tend to prefer ritual, habit, and order over disorder, irregularity, and chaos. One reason I like using words liturgy, the words liturgy and liturgical, is that it reminds us that worship, by definition, is communal. It's never meant to be only the work of the worship leaders, or the pastors, or whomever is holding the microphone. Liturgy is the work of the people, not the work of a few. So, when the decibels are too loud from the stage and the people's voice can't be heard, that's a problem. It's what we all do in view of the divine mercy we've received. Are you with me? So the Christian church throughout history, despite its flaws and shortcomings and even its grievous injustices, has done some very good things. It's offered some good gifts. I think one of the biggest ones is this year-long guide for practicing liturgical, liturgical time. It's known as the liturgical calendar, or church calendar, or church year, or liturgical year. All of these terms mean the same thing, and it's very easy to say 
church year as opposed to a liturgical calendar. So we can uh, interchange those. The liturgical year evolved over a very long period of time. And we don't have time to get into it too deeply. But what's important to realize is that the roots of this way of keeping sacred time did not originate within Christianity. They sprang up. Sing Jews, as you may know, have three main principal or annual feasts that commemorate God's redemptive acts among God's people. All are described in Deuteronomy 16. There are the feasts of unleavened bread, of weeks, and of booths, or also known as tabernacles. So Christians, however, believe that the redemptive acts of God find their ultimate fulfillment in Christ, namely his incarnation and his death and resurrection. So, the graphic moment that you've all been waiting for, drum roll please, here's how it looks visually. Boom. <laughs> so, this is the work of Zach Bulick, our friend and designer, who's part of our community. Thank you, Zach. Um, but wait, there's more. Let's zoom in a bit and just look at the top half. So the incarnation is remembered through what's known as the Christmas cycle, which moves from Advent until the start of Lent. The resurrection is remembered through the Easter cycle from Lent until Pentecost. And so these cycles, including the main events of birth, death, and resurrection, and everything in between tell the story of Jesus. The rest of the year, the bottom half, is called the season after Pentecost, or ordinary time, or numbered time. And this is the time that we're reminded to live out our calling in the world, to bear witness to divine love, to embody good news, to care for the poor, to, in the words of the prophet Micah, to act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God, who we see most clearly in the person of Christ. So all of this together is an incredible, rich, beautiful, creative resource rooted in the story of scripture from beginning to end. And this is what we're gonna preach through in 2022. So each of those teaching moments will be guided by a companion resource to the church calendar known as the lectionary. Uh, the lectionary, simply put, is an ordered collection of readings from the Bible that are concurrent with the seasons and themes of the liturgical year and designed for our use in worship. They're set readings for every Sunday. So in some traditions, four scripture lessons or readings are read every single week. One from the Old Testament or Acts, a psalm, a gospel, and an epistle or something from Revelation. An epistle simply means a New Testament letter. At Artisan, we have been following the lectionary readings, and typically we do two every Sunday. Normally it's the psalm and the gospel. Now, brief sidebar. If you haven't picked it up by now, this is more of a teach than a preach, but I hope that by the end of it, it will feel like a preach, that it's good news. So um, a little sidebar, the lectionary that we use is actually a three-year set of readings divided into years A, B, and C. In year A, the gospel readings are drawn from Matthew. In year B, the gospel reading is drawn from Mark. In year C, which we're in now, from Luke. John's gospel, by contrast, shows up just sporadically throughout the lectionary. It takes a premier role in the high points of the church year pretty much dominates the Easter season and makes several other guest appearances. I don't know all the reasons for this, but one reason is that in terms of the chronology of the Jesus story, and in some cases, the theology of it, 
John kind of marches to the beat of a different drum than the other three two, did do. So we'll leave it at that for now. That's the end of the sidebar. One thing I love about the lectionary, is, and it's making me excited about preaching through it this year together with our team, is how the four readings connect the various parts of scripture together in some pretty incredible ways. The lectionary in, I can turn pages. The lectionary in itself is a pretty amazing teaching tool in that sense. I think it's gonna help us read and engage with scripture better. And by that I mean more faithfully, more humbly, more responsibly as a church. And I, I'm also hoping it helps us understand better what the Bible is and isn't and what it is and is not meant to do. How y'all doing? You ready for a short walk through each of the seasons? That's where we're going next. So even though we're presently in Epiphany, I'm going to back up to the beginning of the liturg liturgical calendar. See, I told you about saying it in connection with a whole bunch of other words, the church year, uh, which is the season of Advent. So in a sense, it's kind of like we started this series without y'all knowing about it, because we did preach through the lectionary in Advent. Um, and so here is the Advent season. This is a season of four weeks of waiting and preparation. Rachel Held Evans describes what Advent's about as well as anyone I've seen. She says this, Advent is a season of anticipation, of holy waiting. It is a waiting characterized not by idleness or even contented peace, but by prophetic yieldedness and active hope. Perhaps more than any other season in the Christian calendar, Advent acknowledges the already and not yet nature of the kingdom of God. In remembering the anticipation of Christ's second coming, Advent is a season for the prophets, for the dreamers, for the poets. A great light has shone, but there's still so much darkness to pierce, so much gloom to overcome. Advent should be a season of surprises too, of God showing up when and where we least expect Emmanuel, in a womb, in a barn, as a poor minority in an oppressive empire, at the soup kitchen, at that church service you resisted attending, in that family member with whom you disagree, in every corner of this world, from Ferguson, Ferguson, Missouri, Palestine to your kitchen. It's a season to slow down and pay attention, to listen to the prophets, to look for God in God's distressing disguises. So rich. I should mention that the colors connected to these seasons carry symbolic meaning as well. So the colors of Advent are purple, which signifies repentance, penitence, and blue, which represents hope and the dawning of a new day. So we could sum it up by saying Advent anticipates the coming of Messiah. Well, then comes Christmas, which as many of us know, is not just a single day, but a 12-day celebration. Begins at sunset on December 24 and ends January 5th. The season of Christmastide commemorates the incarnation of Jesus. God in the flesh, who comes to bring salvation to a world overshadowed by sin and evil and death. Now, 
Contrary to what this image is telling us, which was my oops, not Zach's, and something I didn't clue into to this morning, the colors of Christmas are not red, but white and gold. So white symbolizes the peace and purity and innocence of the Christ child, and gold symbolizes what's precious and valuable, reminds us that this is no ordinary human child. I love what Joan Chittister says about Christmas. Christmas, the light that shone upon a manger was also the ancients knew, the light that led them on beyond it as well. If God is truly with us, has been manifested among us, companions us as we go, knows our pains and our hopes, then life is not a dark forest from which there is no exit. It is a darkness, however dark, that is always overcome by light. So Christmas celebrates the birth of Jesus. After Christmas comes Epiphany, meaning appearance or revelation. It's the season we're in. And it's known in some traditions as Epiphany Tide, which is a lot of syllables also and clunky to say. So it usually gets shortened to Epiphany. And in many ways, this season is a continuation of Christmas. It's one that amplifies our awareness of the person of Jesus as we remember the story of the Magi, these foreign kings who followed strange permutations of the stars to find their way to the child, give him gifts to offer their worship. So as Epiphany unfolds, the lectionary leads, uh, the texts of the lectionary lead us to consider the stories of Jesus' earthly ministry, his baptism, his first miracles, such as we read this morning in the lectionary reading, uh, the calling of the disciples, the Sermon on the Mount. It's been a while since we've spent time in these stories. And so because that's true, we're gonna anchor our epiphany teaching primarily in the lectionary texts, texts from the Gospel of Luke. There may be some touching down on some of the other three that are grouped with each Sunday, but we're gonna anchor primarily in Luke's Gospel. I'm really looking forward to journeying with you all through this season. The color of epiphany, correctly, is light green. This symbolizes newness of life and the promise of growth as we deepen our apprenticeship to Jesus. So Epiphany remembers the revelation of Christ to the world. Well, next comes Lent. I really like what Diane Roth says about Lent. Contrary to what you've been told, Lent does not mean 40 days of beating yourself up. It does not even mean 40 days of God beating you up and reminding you of what kind of a person you really are. Lent means spring. Lent is short for lengthen. Someone somewhere noticed that at least in this hemisphere, the season of Lent was accompanied by the lengthening of days. So yes, while Lent is the season where we solemnly and humbly and sometimes quietly remember Christ's journey to the cross, examining our own lives, considering places and practices and habits through which we've maybe gotten a little out of step with the way of Jesus, and to be led into fresh decision-making around these things. It's also a time to reflect on the way the Spirit gives new life. We're invited to keep following Jesus, to experience Christ's setting us right love, 
and to be empowered then to share Christ's setting us right love with the world. Roth once more. Lent means spring. It means lengthening days, opening the windows, letting in life and death, the things we can't control. It means going to the cemetery and standing in the mud and snow and grass, where the pain and the hope are all mixed up together. Lent means spring. The color of Lent is purple, signifying pain and suffering, which bring both grief and repentance and ultimately new life. Purple is also the color of royalty, reminding us that Jesus is our Messiah and King. So we could say Lent is the solemn yet springtime journey to the cross. Close on the heels of Lent, of course, comes Easter. And Easter, like Christmas, is not just a single day, but a 50-day season. There's a lot we could say about it. We will as we come up on that season, but some of my favorite words about Eastertide come from N.T. Wright. I will spare you an attempt at an English accent, but the full effect, just try it at home at some time. So the first phrase, because otherwise that's it. Because as you get deeper into it, you know the effect. It just starts to lose its meaning, and all you're doing is listening to the accents. I regard it as absurd and unjustified that we should spend 40 days keeping Lent, pondering what it means, preaching about self-denial, being at least a little gloomy, and then bringing it all to a peak with Holy Week, which in turn climaxes in Maundy Thursday and Good Friday. And then after a rather odd Holy Saturday, we have a single day of celebration. Stop it. That's it. Thank you. Oh, guys. Oh, man. Eastertide, he continues, ought to be an eight-day festival with champagne served after morning prayer, even before, with lots of hallelujahs and extra hymns, right, Jenny? <laughs> and spectacular anthems. This is another context. Is it any wonder people find it hard to believe in the resurrection of Jesus if we don't throw our hats in the air? Is it any wonder we find it hard to live the resurrection if we don't do it exuberantly in our liturgies? Is it any wonder the world doesn't take much notice if Easter is celebrated as simply the one-day happy ending tacked on to 40 days of fasting and gloom? It's long overdue that we took a hard look at how we keep Easter in church, at home, in our personal lives, right through the system. Yes, Tom Wright, what a great prompt. How might we keep Easter together in 2022. The colors are white and gold. Gold declares Christ is king, the one who conquered death by his own death. White declares that all things have been made new and are being made new. In Jesus, we have been given newness of life and victory over sin and death. This is the hope of Easter. It's the hope we seek to embody in our lived experience. It's the message we proclaim. Easter is the celebration of the resurrection. At last, we come to Pentecost. So Pentecost means 50. It's the name for the Jewish Feast of Weeks, which is a festival that takes place 50 days after Passover. 
It celebrates the giving of God's law to Moses on Mount Sinai. And the day of Pentecost, if you fast forward to the book of Acts, was also the day when 50 days after the death and resurrection of Jesus, God's spirit was poured out on the followers of Jesus, giving birth to the church. I love that we sang Holy Spirit this morning. Flood this place, fill the atmosphere. That's exactly what was going on at Pentecost. And the color's red, symbolizing joy and also symbolizing the fire of the spirit that appeared over the early disciples. So in some, we could say Pentecost marks the birth of the church through the outpouring of the Spirit. I won't say much more about ordinary time at this point, just that as we mentioned earlier, ordinary time, sometimes called kingdom time, leads us through the year then and back to Advent. So Advent anticipates the coming of Messiah. There's some extra key words over top here. Christmas celebrates the birth of Jesus. Epiphany remembers the revelation of Christ to the world. Lent is the solemn yet springtime journey to crucifixion, to the cross event. Easter is the celebration of the resurrection. Pentecost marks the birth of the church as Jesus ascends to heaven and sends, outpours the Holy Spirit. So, those of you who like to have a sense of how all this fits together, what to call it, is this one big year-long series or a bunch of little ones? Yes. It's both. Or here's another way to think of it. Our overall teaching emphasis, our theme, our catechesis, our curriculum for 2022 is the liturgical year. But there will be several sub-series as we walk through the various seasons. So why? Why, again, are we doing a liturgical year? It keeps us anchored in the big story. In a time when there's all kinds of competing stories everywhere we look, narratives that often seem to be centered on what's really important, but clearly often have the opposite effect. They pull us toward that which really doesn't matter all that much. This product, that piece of tech, this vacation, that quick fix, this answer to all your hopes and dreams. The liturgical year, in the midst of all that, quietly springs up from the ground. It keeps our eyes fixed on the author and finisher of our faith. It keeps us moving at the pace of our relationship with Christ. It keeps us centered on Jesus. I hope this sounds compelling to you. It does to me. I was reading uh, Tish Harrison Warren's book called Liturgy of the Ordinary, and I discovered I'm not alone in being late to the party on all this. Some of you might have the opposite experience. Maybe you were raised, born and raised, and this is all completely old news. You, you could teach this better than I could. Um, but I, I think I'm probably among the majority that most of us were not sort of raised in that kind of environment. So being late to the party, she writes this, followers of Jesus exist in an alternative chronology. The church has its own time. I didn't make this discovery till college and it left me dazzled. I was like a kid discovering a secret passageway in my own house. Liturgical time. You mean this has been here all along? Right in my house? Ready to be explored? I wrote, yes, me too, in the margin of my book. My first real encounter with the liturgical year beyond Christmas and Easter came during my seminary study at Regent College, where they follow the liturgical year and, I would say, 
do a pretty good job of embodying the richness and the depth and uncovering it, the treasures that are found within it. And I was so compelled with it, in fact, and this is something that many, but not all of you may know about me, I decided to base my arts thesis project on the liturgical year. I made a jazz recording called Keeping Time Volume One, Sounding the Liturgical Year Through Jazz. That was my master's thesis. And then I decided to make a volume two. I realized I still had more music in me on this theme. If you really wanna check it out, they're on the streaming services. That's all I'm gonna shamelessly self-promote about that. By the way, the comment I most hear from 20 and 30-somethings, if I'm playing a gig out somewhere and they say, oh, you're that Nelson Bosch, my, my parents love your music. <laughs> so tell your parents about it. <laughs> I mention this because, also because, the liturgical year is an invitation into creativity. So I wonder, in this community, as our imaginations are engaged by these seasons and themes and stories, might the Spirit be nudging you? or a group of you to create some new thing, a poem, a song, a prayer, a visual art piece, or a series, or a dance, to enhance our shared worship, to enable the work of the people, to help us hear and respond to the God who is love. I wonder, I'm gonna to try to make that invitation a bit more concrete as we move through these next couple of weeks. But here's the big picture invite once again, to practice the way of Jesus by practicing liturgical time. What do you think, you with me? May God help us.